This is an ABC podcast. Back in March last year, I was about to launch the first season of Russia, if you're listening, all about Russia's interference in the US election. I was busy writing and rewriting the first few episodes, and I was also working my day job as a newsreader. I can just say more on that coming up in a moment, more on Alinta. At the same time as this, in a small town in England, one of the most bizarre stories of the last five years was playing out. You're listening to RM Breakfast. It's 29 minutes to wait. Matt Bevan joins us now with the news headlines. Hi, Matt. G'day, Fran. British authorities say a former Russian spy is in a critical condition after coming into contact with an unknown substance. A former Russian double agent named Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were attacked with a nerve agent. This is Yulia Skripal speaking about that attack. I came to the UK on the 3rd of March to visit my father, something I've done before. After 20 days in a coma, I woke to the news that we may have been poisoned. Yulia had been found on a bench in a park next to the River Avon. She was foaming at the mouth. Her skin was completely white and her eyes were wide open. I still find it difficult to come to terms with the fact that both of us were attacked in such a way. The fact that a nerve agent was used to do this was shocking. We're so lucky to have both survived this attempted assassination. Sergei Skripal, who had been living peacefully in Salisbury for several years, was hospitalised for two months, along with his daughter, who was visiting from Moscow. I have walked past the park they were found in when I was visiting the famous cathedral town of Salisbury seven years ago. This is the Salisbury Cathedral Choir, singing under the tallest spire in England. I've visited that cathedral twice. It's very nice. But the main reason I was in Salisbury is because of Sally Stocks. How long have we known each other? Gosh, well, uh, since you were born. So, <laughs> Sally is an internationally known flautist, and when she's not travelling around the world playing concerts, she's teaching flute in Salisbury. She lives less than a mile from the park the Skripals were found in. The actual park itself, it's pretty much the hub of Salisbury, and it's, it's very, very near the Market Square, which is also the centre of Salisbury, if you like. It's where everyone gravitates towards. Sally was out of town on the night the Skripals were found and first heard about it the following morning. I was travelling back into Salisbury and happened to turn on the local Spire FM <laughs> and uh, heard the news that these two people had been found and that they weren't quite sure what was going on. It sounded pretty horrific. Uh, so we were sort of tuning in every hour, really, just to try and see what was going on. Police swarmed. Streets were cordoned off. Businesses were closed. It was pretty scary, really, because, you know, initially, when I'd first turned the news on, they were suggesting that maybe it was drugs. But soon it turned out that the people involved weren't on drugs and they were Russian. Quite prophetically, I received a text from a friend saying, oh, this is like a, uh, you know, it's like a Russian spy story. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, gradually, you know, as more time went on, that uh, seemed to be the case. The attack on the Skripals happened in early March. For the rest of that month, police conducted operations all over town. It was all anyone could talk about. After all, nothing like this had ever happened in a town like Salisbury before. As spring turned into summer, though, eventually, the people of Salisbury started to move on. Yulia and Sergei were released from hospital. The nightmare seemed to be over. I think they felt secure in the fact that there were lots of police around. 
Um, but yes, I think we had the feeling at that point that maybe everything was under control, if you like, for want of a better expression. But just when everyone thought it was safe to venture out in Salisbury, the illusion of this small, sleepy town was shattered again. Just four months after the Skripal attack, a man named Charlie Rowley found a little cardboard box. It was a um, three-by-three-inch box, about half-inch thick, which contained a glass bottle. Charlie doesn't remember exactly where he found this box, but it was somewhere in Salisbury. And when he did, he decided to take a closer look at the glass bottle inside. So he had to remove the, the bottle from the cellophane wrapper, uh, put the pump dispenser on the bottle, and it poured. I ended up tipping some of my hands. My hands were covered in stuff. Um, hence, I can tell you, it, had, it was an oily substance with very little odour. Charlie washed the substance off his hands. Then, after assembling the perfume bottle, he gave it to his partner, a woman named Dawn Sturgis. I do have a memory of her spraying on her wrist and, and I guess, rubbing it, rubbing them together. I think within 15 minutes, I believe Dawn said she felt that she had a headache. She asked me if I had any headache tablets I went into the bathroom and and found her um, in the bath, fully clothed, led in the bath. Dawn and Charlie both fell into a coma and were rushed to hospital. Charlie survived, but when he woke up, he was told that the substance in that perfume bottle was Novichok and that it had killed his partner Dawn. I think, in a sense, that was far worse. Obviously, you know, your initial reaction is shock, then fear, and then I think anger. The feeling, I think, in Salisbury was, oh, no, not again. And then there's a real fear because it is totally the unknown. So, you know, how much of this stuff is there still around? Where is it? And that's the thing. No one knew how much nerve agent there might be in Salisbury. And there was one woman dead, three people in comas, a town jumping at shadows, tourists steering clear. It didn't take long to figure out that Russia was responsible. But it took a little longer to piece together what exactly had happened in Salisbury that cold, cold, wet day. This morning the police have set out how the two Russian nationals travelled under the names of Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bushirov, names the police believe to be aliases. The best we can tell is the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU, sent two men from Russia to Salisbury. The two individuals named by the police are officers from the Russian military intelligence service, also known as the GRU. Their goal was to kill Russian double agent Sergei Skripal, who the GRU considered a traitor. So this was not a rogue operation. It was almost certainly also approved outside the GRU at a senior level of the Russian state. The two men brought a nerve agent developed over a period of 22 years by the Soviet Union with them, hidden in a perfume bottle. Novichok nerve agents were developed by the Soviet Union in the 1980s under a program codenamed Foliant. They took this terrifying weapon, which had never been used outside of Russia, 
and they sprayed it on the doorknob of Sergei Skripal's home in Salisbury. Then they tossed the bottle somewhere in town and flew back to Moscow. Authorities tested that Novichok perfume bottle and determined it had enough nerve agent in it to potentially kill thousands of people. The actions of the GRU are a threat to all our allies and to all our citizens. But these two men will never be extradited from Russia. Of course, Russia has repeatedly refused to allow its nationals to stand trial overseas, citing a bar on extradition in its constitution. This story has gradually faded away in the midst of, well, everything else. But it's stuck with me ever since. The reason for that is, well, it is an insane, brutal, cruel, careless, outrageous, provocative act. It is a chemical weapons terror attack instigated by the Russian military in England in broad daylight. And apart from some banished diplomats, no justice for the Skripals... Dawn Sturgis and Charlie Rowling. I just want justice, really. I want justice to be served and for someone to pay for their, what they've done. I think that would probably put my mind at rest. The Salisbury attack seems completely wild, but insane events like this have actually become fairly common in Europe. And while many seem like they're completely random and unconnected, they all fit into one common thread. Like when hackers broke into three separate Ukrainian electricity companies and switched off the power grid. These attacks were very well synchronized. They had multiple stages involved with them and they conduct against multiple targets at once. This is Michael Assant, who helped the investigation into that hacking. He and most people are pretty sure those hackers were Russian. The attack had serious elements of good military precision, execution and coordination. The attack left 225,000 people in Ukraine without power on an almost freezing afternoon just two days before Christmas 2015. So why did the hackers do it? Well kind of to see if they could. And their success and the size and scale of this attack makes it fairly clear that Russia could do something like this again. But probably much, much bigger. Shutting off a whole European country, for example, or several countries at once. And it's not just hacking. In the past few years, Russia has also straight up offered cash to people and organisations in Europe who they think can help them, like they did in France with the far-right political party National Front. National Front leader Marine Le Pen is a regular visitor to Moscow. She admitted Tuesday that the party had taken an $11 million loan from Russian-owned First Czech Russian Bank. Leader Marine Le Pen took the loan banks wouldn't lend her, due in part to her party's long history of anti-Semitism, racism and homophobia. By the way, the Russian banks just loaned Marie Le Pen 9 million euros. They, the Le Pen people said no one else will give us a cent, but Putin will. The National Front used that low-interest loan to propel Marine Le Pen into a real chance at winning the French presidency. Her opponent in 2017 was Emmanuel Macron, 
who was hit with everything in the Russian election interference toolbox. The hackers who targeted Macron's campaign had the same fingerprints as hackers nicknamed Fancy Bear. That's the group which U.S. intelligence officials say targeted the Democratic Party and is believed to be commanded by the GRU. Russia's support for Le Pen's campaign was far more obvious than their support for Donald Trump. She almost won the election against Macron. But funneling money into politics is nothing compared to the stunt Russia tried to pull off in another European country, Montenegro. Perhaps the most disturbing indication of how far Vladimir Putin is willing to go to advance his dark and dangerous view of the world... This is the late US Senator John McCain. ...is what happened in October 2016 in the small Balkan country of Montenegro. What happened is that the country's Prime Minister, Milo Djukanovic, who, to be fair, is a fairly problematic guy, was hoping to win re-election. But Russia decided they weren't keen on that. And so they came up with a plan, a completely insane plan, with the goal being that secret agents would murder its Prime Minister on the country's election day. Yes, that's right. The grand master plan was to kill a legitimate elected Prime Minister of a sovereign nation. Phase one of the plan was for Russian intelligence operatives to join in with some other people who didn't like the Prime Minister, Serbian nationalists. Then encourage these Serbians to grab their guns and cross over into Montenegro and start protesting on election day. As the protests were underway, a group of 50 armed men would ambush and kill the members of Montenegro's special anti-terrorist unit to prevent them from interfering with the coup. Okay, so the Russian special operatives planned to ambush Montenegro's specialist counter-terrorist force, which would be difficult, but go on. The armed men, still wearing their police uniforms, would then proceed to the parliament building where they would begin shooting at members of the police defending the parliament building. They hoped to create the impression that some members of the police were changing sides and joining the protesters against the government. So yeah, that's a coup. The next phase of this Russian plan was to take control of the parliament, declare victory for the opposition, and then... Within 48 hours, a new government would be formed and arrests would be made across the capital, including of Premier Minister Djukanovic. If the prime minister could not be captured, he would be killed. Right. So, very big, very ambitious, very murdery plan. You'll be shocked to discover it didn't quite work. In fact, it failed before it got started. The Montenegrin counter-terrorism police cottoned on. The Serbian guys involved in the plot were rounded up and arrested, but they missed the pair of Russian military intelligence agents. Those two men fled to Serbia and boarded a commercial flight home. The Russians got away. They always do. If you read the news... You would think that the main focus of Russia's interference is America. We believed that General Flynn was compromised with respect to the Russians. And I didn't have, not have communications with the Russians. And in this podcast, we have spoken about that a lot. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. But ever since that Salisbury attack, I've realised Europe is actually ground zero. 
And what's been happening in Europe over the past 10 years can tell us so much about what it is Putin wants. And that is what this season, season three of Russia If You're Listening, is all about. We're investigating all the things Putin has been doing across Europe to influence and undermine Western power. We'll start with what Putin's really doing in Ukraine. The moment Russian troops smash their way into Ukraine's Crimea airbase. We'll look at why Putin has it in for Germany's leader Angela Merkel. United and determined, we can bring our values and interests to bear in the world. We'll uncover Putin's role in the mess the UK is in right now. Criminal investigation for donations made during the Brexit referendum. We'll look at who Putin's powerful friends and allies are across Europe. I've been accused endlessly by The Guardian of working with the Russians, and apart from drinking the odd vodka, that's about as guilty as I've ever been. It's ludicrous. You can draw a direct line in Moscow, all the way to Salisbury in England, via Crimea, Berlin and London. So I have a very simple message for Russia. We know what you are doing, and you will not succeed. And find out... Will Putin's plans actually work? I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening, a podcast about Vladimir Putin's campaign to undermine and destroy the Western world. It's produced by Will Ockenden and Ruby Jones. Next, we'll tell you the story of why this is happening, right from the beginning. He was absolutely unknown for Russian people uh, in 1999. In 1999, Vladimir Putin was a creepy former spy who had somehow found himself the Prime Minister of Russia. We knew about him only as about the head of the FSB, former KGB, and mostly people were afraid of him. His power increased dramatically after a series of bombings. An explosion sent more than 60 apartments crashing to the ground. Some people thought Putin had some link to these bombings. Most of the people who thought that are now dead. That was the first time I felt something bad is happened. But Putin never forgot the lessons he learned while becoming president. And a decade later, when the going got tough, he put those lessons into action. Why Putin wants to take on America, Ukraine and everything in between. That's next on Russia If You're Listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.